Well, gentlemen, good morning. We uh, are delighted to have you with us again as the summer kind of makes its way along. And uh, you must be all the people without lake houses, I guess, or something, right? The, all of us uh, who are the, the remnant back here during the week in the middle of the summer. But we are so delighted to have you and uh, to uh, be gathering around with our uh, speaker for this morning. Our speaker is uh, Kenan Vaughn. Kenan will be mo- known to most of you as uh, the, the uh, leader of and developer of a ministry called Downline Ministries here in Memphis. Many of you and uh, your wives and some of your kids even have probably been involved at some point in uh, being a part of that ministry. The ministry, and maybe Kenan will say a few words about that as, as he comes, but it's focused on discipleship training and the, uh, the mandate that we have as men and women to uh, follow after Christ and his great commission. And we love, as a church, the, the focus that that ministry brings to the lives of all those who've been involved and uh, the, the uh, fruitfulness, really, of the ministry as men and women are developed um, for Christ here in our city and, and elsewhere as they go out. And so we really look uh, to Kenan as, as a dear colleague in ministry. He has uh, family ties here at Second as well, and so there's just a, a real strong tie that we sense with him. And we're so delighted and, and uh, honored, really, this morning to have Kenan Vaughn with us. So please welcome him as he would come this morning. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. Well, good morning. My name is Kenan, and it really is a uh, treat to be with you guys this morning. I have uh, been to many Amen Bible studies in my life, never supposing that I would have the privilege of teaching at one. And I'll be honest with you, it's somewhat intimidating to follow in Sandy's stead as it is, but I hope that uh, as has been prayed, the Lord would would give us a word this morning on this July 18th, and uh, that we would go out and serve and honor Him. I'm married to Catherine. Uh, If any of y'all know my wife, she's um, out of my league. And uh, we've got four little boys, uh, Caleb, who's almost six, uh, Luke, you know, I forget their ages, but their names are Caleb, Luke, Jonathan, and David. So we'll suffice to say they're all in there between zero and six, and I love them. And um, it's kind of like just herding cats around the Vaughn house right now, but uh, it's this kind of beautiful exhaustion. My wife and I are so tired every night in bed, we can't remember the last four hours, but we're having the time of our lives. And so uh, many of you guys have probably been there, some of you are probably there now, and uh, as uh, Mike said, family ties here. My, my brother-in-law, Big Ben Scott, uh, Big Daddy as we call him, and um, he has served faithfully here in, in leadership and uh, goes here with my sister, his wife, who is Lauren Scott. And I uh, couldn't be any prouder to have uh, a brother-in-law uh, like Ben than I am. He is uh, so special to me. And so um, with that uh, downline, Mike said, um, uh, just a word about that. It's a disciple-making ministry. Uh, we've got now uh, 54 church partners in Memphis. What's really neat about Second is the ministry began in 2006 and Second was one of the 11 churches that were the founding partners. In fact, there would be no downline if there weren't 11 churches that said we would like to partner together and see if we could do something as a community that would strengthen the discipleship culture in our churches. So there were 11 of those. Second was one of them. Um, We had 30 young men go through our downline institute, which you may have heard of, a nine-month program where we walk Genesis through Revelation and teach disciple-making all in a nine-month kind of school year calendar. 
and now uh, seven years later there's about 1,200 in the city that have been trained and we have about 200 men and women coming through each year from these 54 different churches. So the Lord's hand's just been on it. I praise God for that. Absolutely been a God thing. Um, and, uh, and again, just really special to be a part of and seeing a lot of familiar faces. I know many of you guys have had a chance to be a part of that too. And so hopefully uh, that's something we've been blessed together in. This morning we're going to be in uh, Luke. You know, whenever someone just says, teach whatever you want, which is kind of the, what I got this morning, um, it's almost harder because you're looking at the whole word going, golly, you know what? But I always gravitate towards the, the Luke in parables. Uh, something in me um, just always comes alive and resonates at these teachings between Luke chapter 10 and chapter 19. Uh, he gives us about a dozen parables. And in my opinion, um, I don't know any books that have been written on this. Maybe you could write the first. But I think every one of these parables preaches the gospel. Uh, you really could just kind of... 12 different stories that, that make clear in the context of a conversation where Jesus tells a story, everyone just portrays the beauty of the gospel. And so honestly, we could, we could, we could just throw a dart in here and wherever it landed, we could, we could talk through that parable and be blessed this morning. And so I figured we would just start with the first one uh, in Luke chapter 10. And uh, it's going to be a parable you're probably very familiar with. It's, it's titled the parable of the Good Samaritan. But but we may be able to see it in a new light uh, this morning. And let me say this. Uh, Jesus is speaking in parables um, at this transitional place in his ministry. Um, and, and we don't really know why in Luke you just kind of see him roll into this. But in Matthew, we do get an answer. Um, in Matthew 13, his disciples actually ask him, why are you teaching in parables? And that's about when the parables start in Matthew. And Jesus answers the question. And, and it's just after the, um, the Jews have... Uh, declared um, the work he is doing to be done by Beelzebub, that, that they are attributing his power to Satan. And, 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 and in, a, in a marked moment, uh, Jesus says in Matthew 13, I'm going to teach in parables for two reasons. One, it's going to be judgment against Israel. They who have had the law and had the prophets uh, that have pointed to me and they now say that the work I do, I do by Satan. This is going to be a judgment. I'm going to speak the truth in stories that they won't understand. It will hide the truth from the Jews. And in the same time it's doing that, it's going to bring light to the truth of the gospel to the Gentiles who have not had the law and have not had the prophets. They're now going to understand the beauty of the gospel in these little stories that are palatable, that you can read and understand. So them with no understanding, get understanding. Does that make sense? And so these stories are meant to show us the beauty and majesty of the gospel in story form. They're great to pass on to your children, to your grandchildren, um, and I hope that that would be a common practice for us uh, as we look this morning at Luke 10. So let me pray and we'll dive right into the text. Father, thank you so much for these moments um, on an early morning that we can eat breakfast and fellowship and sing my favorite hymn, and that now we can come to the text. Uh, Lord, I do ask, it has been prayed, that you would just speak through us this morning, um, that I would decrease, as John writes, that you would increase, ultimately that we would hear a word from you that allows us to go out and to love others the way we have first been loved. We thank you for the, those who have had a hand in preparing our breakfast this morning and ask that you would uh, bless them. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Luke chapter 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. And so the first thing we see is that um, there's a motive behind this expert in the law coming to Jesus. And, and what, what's the word that portrays the motive? 
test. He's coming to test. In other words, who does he see as the standard? Say himself. Himself, right? You guys with me? He, see, he sees himself as the standard, and he wants to test this young celebrity rabbi to see what does he really know, right? Uh, in other words, um, let's see how he stacks up to somebody like me. I'm an expert. So he comes to him under the guise of teacher. He says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And immediately when he asks this question, let me just ask you guys, and don't be bashful, uh, what rubs you wrong about that question? Does anything? Somebody over here, who, what's that? Um, yeah. Yeah, so Gray, two guys over here said do, and uh, Gray says you can't earn our salvation, which is what that word do implies. It's exactly right. Um, if you've been in Amen Bible study long enough, you see a question like this and you go, wait a minute. Like, something is wrong about the question. What must I do? Because we know inherently there is nothing we can do to earn or inherit our salvation. In fact, that's the very essence of the Christian gospel, is that Jesus did what we cannot do and would never do if we could, lived a perfect life, died a perfect death, in our place for our sin. And so we trust his work on the cross as the substitutionary atonement for our lives, which are wretched, sinful, and not worthy of being saved. You with me? So the gospel at its very foundation uh, shreds this idea of self-righteousness that his question begs, what must I do? Now, I suppose Jesus could have just gone off on him right here. He could, you've missed the whole point. The very reason I'm here is Paul would write in Galatians, if, if, if uh, salvation or righteousness could be gained by the law, uh, I would have to die for nothing. There, there would be no reason for a Messiah. But, but Jesus as he so often does, engages in a dialogue with this expert by asking a question. And his question in verse 26 is, well, what is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? And the genius of Jesus is always staggering, but this is another one of those cases where the answer is in the law. The law really does tell us what we must do to be saved. Now, bear, hold on. Bear with me. No thony stones just yet. It really does tell us. And he knew the expert would know what it said. Sure enough, the expert does. He quotes in verse 27, Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, when he says these words. Here's the expert talking. He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And by the way, he nailed it. That's exactly what we must do to be saved. If you indeed want to take a stab at earning your salvation, here's the requirement. That you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, perfectly, all of the time. Does anyone want to take a stab at that? Anyone want to get to... You know, I don't know how it looks, but you want to want to come to the pearly gates and, 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 and lay as the standard of your righteousness before Peter or Jesus or whoever. Just lay and say, I believe I'm worthy based on my ability to love my God with my whole heart, soul, mind, and strength perfectly all the time. Would anyone take that as the good news of the gospel here today? Boy, not me. Uh, I, I've never put together a day like that. I don't put together many hours like that. 
And this whole love your neighbor as yourself before Jesus even explains. I'm so disqualified, it's not even funny. Um, I already mentioned that I've got a, a beautiful bride. She is sweet, kind of part angel. Like, I love her. I am very blessed. And yet every night when we lay in bed, if I'm honest, and I always wrestle with this. Eight years into marriage, I still wrestle with this. If I'm honest, I need to have a conversation with her where I just kind of think about the day and I hold her hand and I say, babe, this morning, I, the way I spoke when I was rushing out of the house, I'm sorry. I was short with you, had nothing to do with you, had to do with me. And this evening with what we were talking about, you know, my pride was in the way. I was being very selfish and I'm sorry for not being more considerate of your perspective. I mean, to be honest, every night I got to have a talk where I'm ultimately asking forgiveness because the truth is I'm not able to love my wife well for even a day. And Jesus asked this question, hey, what does the law say you got to do to be saved? And what the law says is something I cannot do. So the law, in its perfect essence, points us to our need for a Savior. So Jesus says to him in verse 28, hey, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. I love it. Like, yes, that, that's it. You're, you're an expert in law. You know exactly what you must do. It, there's just a little bit of smugness. Just do that and you'll live. Zoe, the word, you'll have eternal life. Just do that. And again, if, if it's me and I'm in the story, I, I think this is the great moment where we go, but wait, I can't do that. That's the one thing I can't do. And it would be the great opportunity to repent, to fling yourself at the feet of Jesus and to say, can you do for me what I can't do for myself? Like this is his moment. And sadly, his pride gets in the way in verse 29. But, you never want to see the sentence start with but in your moment of repentance. But, he wanted to justify himself. Now if we're honest, that's a story all too common in this room. The gospel is pretty humbling. It starts with awareness that I can't. And then the belief that he can and he did. And then I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And my life is no longer about bringing me glory and me being seen as somebody. It's me being nobody that he may be seen as somebody for everybody. Amen? That's humbling. It's no longer about me. It's not for my glory or my kingdom. It's about him, his glory, his kingdom. We see that man in his natural state wants to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? If I've got to love my neighbors myself, and you say, well, who? And the question begs, like, what's the least amount of people I've got to love well in order to justify myself? This guy's obviously not tracking with Jesus. And so Jesus does what he will do in the next nine chapters, the next ten chapters. He basically says, once upon a time. And he's going to put this on the bottom shelf. In reply, Jesus said, and here's the parable, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. By the way, I'll, I'll stop periodically and talk here. I noticed when I read that, there was not a single response in this room. You guys were just staring at your Bibles, you're quiet, you're... Not sure what you're thinking about, but, but I, I, here's what I want to tell you. If we had been in the crowd this day that Jesus was speaking and heard him say those words, I'm pretty sure there would have been a response. 
So to give us a little context, if you were there and Jesus said that, I think everybody would have went, no, no. Wait, what did he say? Jerusalem? Oh, no. Um, I don't know what the equivalent is. Maybe the best I could do in our city would say a man was walking from Second Press to the Liberty Bowl through the heart of Orange Mound. Pique your interest a little bit. Wait, what? What? Right? This little road, Jerusalem to Jericho, was a 17-mile stretch, literally known in that day as the Path of Blood. The Path of Blood. It was littered with desert pirates, thieves, robbers, uh, and, and truthfully, you should never be on this road alone. Uh, you were just asking for it. And this man was going down Jerusalem, Jericho, crowd going, oh no, when he fell into the hands of robbers, which is exactly what we expect to happen when you're on the path of blood. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. By the way, I don't know what half dead means any more than you guys, uh, but it ain't good, right? Uh, kind of pile of flesh, side of the road, breathing, bloody, you know, just a mess. Um, this guy, the idea is, he's done. He was where he never should have been. He got jumped, and he's, he's not going to make it. And Jesus is telling this story. The people are probably thinking, man, never should have been on the path of blood. And yet, verse 31, a priest happened to be going down the same road. And so you're in the crowd, you're going, wait, what? what a priest? Like, you got to be kidding me. It's, it's his lucky day. I mean, he's half dead. He's only got hours, and yet... Here comes a priest. Oh, praise God. And Jesus says, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. To which in the crowd, oh, there went your shot. Like a priest happened to the coincidence of the moment. You had a chance and right out the back door. And by the way, I, I read this as a kid. I heard this at church camps. And I used to always think, gosh, like I, was, I felt anger towards the priest. How could he be a priest and not be a but, Studying the context at least gives me a sense of understanding for what the priest might have been thinking. So if we put ourselves in his shoes and give him the benefit of the doubt, so to say, the priest coming out of Jerusalem would have almost surely just finished a, a, a several-day period of consecration, of ceremonial cleansing, heading out to his post at Jericho uh, to uh, pour out his ministry. And so here's a guy that's heading out, and as the law taught, if he were to touch or involve himself with this man who was half dead, he would defile himself, have to go back into Jerusalem, and re-go through the ceremonial cleansing of consecration, which will be several more days, even up to a week. And that's time that all these people in Jericho who need him don't have him. And it's one of those things where the masses need me, this man's done. Wish I could have helped him, but truthfully, he's dead. So... I'm not trying to give this guy an easy way out. I'm just saying that might have been what he's thinking. Maybe he's thinking the greater good. And so he passes by. Well, verse 32, so too a Levite, when he came to the place. When he came to the place, you're telling me a Levite happens to be walking down the road? And yet again, you're in the story. And the priest, you know what? And they probably had more understanding. Priest, well, we do understand that. He's... He's got his duties. He's on his way to Jericho. We get it. He'd have to go back, the whole cleansing. But a Levite, that, that's the perfect candidate. A Levite is like a priest in training. And here's the beauty of this. The, the Levite ought to have the heart of the priest. That's what we would expect and hope of the priest in training. And yet not have all the baggage 
of the cleansing and the consecration. So this is perfect. Like, okay, okay, we get on priest. Levite, thank you. Came to the place, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And again, the blood begins to boil. We got this guy, he's half dead. Why won't someone stop to help him? Um, now, I'll be honest. I was studying these parables afresh this last spring, uh, or last winter, um, and I got really convicted. I'm, I'm just going to be honest. I feel a little shame in telling you this. Uh, but I got really convicted in my anger towards the Levite. And here's why. Um, I don't know what he was thinking. I don't know what his excuse or justification or rationalization would have looked like. But here's what I do know. I pass guys every single day in Memphis that look a lot like this guy on the side of the road. Not quite, not openly bleeding, maybe in their last moments, but I pass guys in obvious, open need. And the Lord just hit me with this so many times. You know what my thought is? So many times I will literally see a guy and go, um, doesn't just need $2, needs some time, some love, the gospel. And I'll go, gosh, I got a 2 o'clock, then I got a 3.30, and if those back up, I won't be home at 5, and my first prize with the family. Lord, send somebody that can actually love this person. By the way, at the corner, I live near the corner of Perkins and Summer, and there's three corners, and almost every single day on the way home from work, there's opportunities to love somebody that's in desperate need. Um, and there's a whole lot more days that I pass those men by than I stop. And, and here's all I would say. I kind of go, what if the Levite just kind of thought, ah, my 2 o'clock, my 3.30, uh, I'm going to be on by 5, I can't, I don't want to leave my wife, the kid, ah, Lord, send somebody. I'm not saying it was right. I'm just saying, I hate to admit it, but I understand. I do that every day. By the way, there's one other thing we probably ought to give this guy. Can you imagine being on the path of blood yourself? Seeing a man that's half dead, pretty fresh, and kind of thinking, I don't know who did that, but they're probably still out there. And if I stop, I'm next. Like, I'd have to be afraid. If we're just brutally honest, there's fear, there's a, there's a million ways I can justify moving on. And he chose one of them, and he did. So be it. Um, verse 33, Jesus says, but, but a Samaritan. Um, in the context here, the fact that Jesus says but is the very idea in a triadic parable that we're going to introduce a third character that's different than the first two. Idea being different that maybe he's going to stop. But the problem is Jesus said a Samaritan. Um, yet again, there was no real visceral reaction here among you men. But I can promise you, in Jesus' day, if a teacher of the law was getting up to speak in a parable, the only time a Samaritan would be mentioned would be to be lauded as the villain, never the hero. Um, you guys know the context. You guys probably know your Old Testament as well as any group uh, in the city. Uh, but the Samaritan came from this northern invasion of Assyria, when Assyria invaded the northern tribe of Israel. And you guys know the story. Israel had fallen into incredible sin in the kingdom in the northern half. Southern half is Judah, northern half is Israel. They get swept into captivity, 722 a, uh, uh, B.C., never to return again. And the Assyrians do this. They don't just take the Israelites out. They uh, import pagans in. 
and they import pagans to, to intermarry and breed with the Israelite women to create a new race and to further destroy the, the roots of Israel in their own land. Well, Israel had always been told, you, you don't sleep, intermarry, uh, or worship with the enemy. And they did all of the above in the north. They slept, intermarried, and began to accept their idols as gods of their own, and they inter-worshipped. And so in the south, in the kingdom of Judah, um, they didn't look too highly upon this. And later, not too long later, 586, they would go into captivity in Babylon. Um, uh, and when they would come back under Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, you guys know the story, they would begin to rebuild the wall. And if you remember the story, um, the Samaritans came down Samaritans, this half-breed of Jew and pagan, came down and said, hey, we're here to help. And the southern Jew said, no, that's not going to work. You guys not only intermarried, but you are inter-worshipping. You're not one of us. Right, that was a pretty big break in the action. Uh, it got much further when, a few hundred years later, the Greeks took over. Alexander's conquering the world. After he dies, one of his four key guys, or... Uh, one of his four key guys was Seleucid, and the Seleucid Empire, eight guys later, was Antiochus Epiphanes. If you're familiar with that name, he's written of throughout the book of Daniel. This guy's crazy. He's a madman. And he has he's targeted Jerusalem, and he's got to go through the northern half um, of Samaria to get there. And so he's going to destroy everybody. And the Samaritans say, whoa, 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 you don't have to destroy us. Matter of fact, we'll step aside. Matter of fact, we'll help. Let's get those nasty Jews pretty low. A little friction between the Jews and the Samaritans. To the extent that when Jesus is speaking with the woman at the well who's a Samaritan in John 4, they get a sentence in the conversation and she goes, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. We don't talk. Why are you talking to me? In John 8, they said the, the, the worst cut down they could think to give Jesus, they said, you're a demon-possessed Samaritan. That's what you are. They, they had nothing lower than that. In the very preceding chapter in Luke 9, Jesus was simply trying to make his way to Jerusalem. And just because he was going to Jerusalem, the Samaritans wouldn't let him walk through their country. Now, are you with me? That's some serious tension. That's some tension in the relationship. And Jesus, speaking to these Jew, Jewish crowds, says, But a Samaritan, as he traveled came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. The Samaritan felt something. By the way, I suppose the priest felt something, I suppose the Levite felt something, but the Samaritan felt something that caused him to stop. Your Bible says pity or compassion. And he went to him, and he bandaged his wounds. I don't think he had his little first aid kit. He probably tore his own clothes to bandage this man's wounds. Pouring on oil and wine, which would smooth and clean the wounds. Then he put the man on his own donkey. By the way, if the man's on his donkey, where's he? He's walking 17 miles down the path of blood with a half-dead man in his own clothes on his own donkey. Get the picture. Did he feel something? He felt something took him to an inn, and took care of him. This next phrase is so convicting. The next day. <laughs> By the way, there's been those highlight moments of my life 
where I've actually gone out of my way to help someone. They're few and far between, but they've happened. Never has there been the, um, the subheading in, in my little highlight reel, the next day, um, it's never cost me that much. Um, I don't know what his schedule looked like. I don't know what his family looked like. By the way, he surely was going somewhere doing something. He wasn't just a wanderer with no. I mean, he felt something that ruined his day and his schedule. And it was like it was out of compulsion. It was like he couldn't not do it. And so he puts this guy on his donkey, cleans his wound, bands him, takes him in. The next day, he takes out two silver coins. The guy's already cost him time. Now he's costing him money. He gave them to the innkeeper. And listen to what he says. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I love that. Uh, when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. Just did something you just really shouldn't do. He just wrote a blank check to an innkeeper to take care of a stranger who's very likely his enemy. How's that strike you guys? Sounds like foolishness to me. Uh, he's going to be taken advantage of, right? Does he not understand that? Does he not understand he's going to be taken for all he's worth right here by an innkeeper and a stranger who's an enemy? You know, I don't think he's that naive. I don't think Jesus' point is the story of the naive Samaritan. It's the good Samaritan. Um, it's that he doesn't care. It's that here's what he says. If I'm made a fool for the gospel, this is what we're to hear. So be it. Make me a fool. My visceral response to the work God has done in my life is to give my life to others. I don't care what it costs me. I counted the cost. I'm already dead to serve him. That kind of freedom can do some damage. He doesn't care. Jesus says the most softball question in the whole Bible. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And I love it. The expert can't say the word Samaritan, but he knows the answer. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Um, you know, I want to tell you, just, just have fun. Just have fun reading these parables. Um, um, and probably a, a, a first blush, at least this is what I do, I always kind of try to find myself in the parable. There's, there's always a character that I most identify with. And I want to tell you, the beauty and majesty of this parable and most of these parables is not when you find which character points to your life. The beauty and majesty of this parable and most of these parables is when you see which character points to Jesus. Uh, I want to tell you, in this parable, one of these characters absolutely points to Jesus. He's like... Jesus is like the ultimate good Samaritan who saw us in our brokenness and stopped, felt something, made himself naked that we could become clothed, made himself vulnerable that we could be healed, provides all we need in this life and says, I'm going to come back for you. Does that sound familiar? And so let me ask you, if Jesus is the ultimate good Samaritan, then who am I most like in this parable. Remember that half-dead pile of flesh? 
I find myself. The man I most identify with is the man in need. It's not that I'm the Levite on my bad days and the Samaritan on my good days. Jesus is the good Samaritan. And I am a pile of flesh, half dead on the side of the road. And by the way, I, 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 I never read this parable growing up and thought, ooh, ooh, here's me, here's me. But you get to verse 30 and there you are. Lying in your need. And Jesus knows it. He already knows where you are. And seeing you there, <clears throat> Jesus doesn't say, well, good luck in your attempts to justify yourself. Hope that goes well for you. He could have said it. We deserved him to say it. He just couldn't because he felt something. <clears throat> because he felt, and the word in Hebrew is chesed. He felt the chesed love of God. It's this almost undescribable term. It's this covenantal mercy this uh, visceral love, this unconditional, just unrequited love that God has for His people. And He felt it something fierce for us in our brokenness so strongly that Philippians would say He considered equality with God not something to be grasped, but made Himself nothing, taking the very form of a man and in His human likeness becoming obedient, even obedient to the death, death on a cross. Jesus came for us, and He cared for us, and He died for us, and paid for us, and heals us, and redeems us, and He says, I'm coming back. He's the ultimate good Samaritan. And He is stopped. For you and I. And that's why we're here today. You know, I just have two little application points. Um, if this is true, if this is a great picture of the, the gospel and Jesus as a Samaritan, which it is, um, I think there's two things we can readily apply to our lives. And the first is this. I believe this changes what it means to follow Christ. Wrestle with that for a moment. Um, we talk all the time about following Jesus. And yet in Jesus we see the picture of a man who is driven by his compassion for the brokenness of others. Can't help himself, but pours life out. And by the way, to what degree, to what standard? To the standard of considering equality with God not something to be grasped, but giving up the throne room, coming to earth, putting on flesh, carrying his own cross up a hill, being spit on, tortured, beaten, and dying. That's how strongly he felt something for us. That's our standard. I want to say that following him can't, can't simply be measured then in vertical devotion. Is that true? It can't simply be how faithful we are in our quiet times or attendance at amen or church or how many verses we have memorized. All fruit of our love for Christ. But, they, it, but it can't be measured simply in vertical devotion. Somehow following Christ has to be measured in our ability to actually follow Christ. Horizontal compassion. If vertical devotion doesn't lead to horizontal compassion, 
then the chesed love of God is not reigning in our hearts. And we're not really following Christ as much as we're learning about Him. This word chesed is so difficult to, um, to do a good job explaining, but let me just give you one story that to the best of my ability, kind of, halfway, from my experience, it kind of captures it. Uh, when I was 16, my father was uh, diagnosed with inoperable brain tumors, given a few months to live. Uh, some of you knew my dad. He was uh, larger than life, big rugby player. Um, uh, I loved him to death. I mean, we just, uh, uh, he was just my best friend, my hero. Just wanted to be just like him, all those things. And when dad got sick, it was um, extremely hard. Uh, worst news ever, going from that, you know, everything's okay one moment, the next, my dad's dying, and I didn't know what to do with that. And um, three months passed quickly. Dad grew increasingly sick until the point that um, he was really on his deathbed. And one uh, day I was in school and I got a call to the office and um, uh, my mom's friend was there to pick me up. Didn't say anything. I knew what was going on. We drove home. And here's what I remember. I remember sitting on the edge of Miss Faber's seat uh, all the way home. Um, uh, I don't think I buckled in that day. I don't remember for sure, but uh, it would have been hard from how I was positioned. Um, and as we drove up the hill to the driveway on Miller Farms Road, um, that car didn't hardly stop before I flung the door open and jumped out and literally ran through the downstairs. I remember a few faces, uh, turned the corner, went upstairs to where I found my dad. Uh, dad lying on his deathbed, struggling to find each breath. And my heart's desire as we drove home, and as I sprinted through the house, I just wanted to get there in time to express to him my love. I just wanted to be there to kind of um, unload how much I loved him, treasured him, appreciated him, um, and how much I wanted to honor him with my life. There was this explosive, uncontrollable feeling of love towards my father. I think it would be the closest I've gotten experientially the chesed love of God. Felt it a few times or at the birth of each one of my children as well. This, I can't love them enough. I want to be with them. I want to honor them. Listen, um, certainly it didn't happen like this, but uh, had Jesus in Philippians 2 come from heaven to earth in a vehicle, if he had been in Miss Faber's car, uh, I really believe that... Um, his position would have been on the edge of his seat, uh, face up against the window, um, hand on the door handle, that uh, he couldn't wait to open the door and explode himself onto the scene of our brokenness. He couldn't wait to get himself involved into the wreckage of our lives and offer himself that we may be healed in him. And he did, and he did it perfectly. When he poured his life out as an offering. And then he puts the baton in the hands of those who will follow him. And he says these words. He says, go and do likewise. And if you're like me, your first thought is, I can't. I can't live like that. To which he says, I know. Um, but you're not going alone. Um, I will go with you. And he gives us. He gives us His Holy Spirit. And here's the beauty of this. Now with Him living in us, the idea is that we can see what He sees. That we can feel what He feels. That all of a sudden this chesed love of God that 
was so poignant in the life of Christ as He lived is alive in us. That we see the brokenness of those around us. And yes, there's a schedule. And yes, there's fear. And yes, there's other things. And yes, there's inconvenience. But there's something in us that wells up that cannot be denied that forces us to stop. There's this compassion that's not of me, but is birthed from the Holy Spirit that lives in me, that still yearns to get the love of Christ into the lives of others. And my ability to respond to the chesed love of God within me by the leading of the Holy Spirit is my ability to follow Christ. And it should be measured in nothing less. And the second thing that I think is so powerful in this um, way of application is um, it doesn't just change what it means to follow Christ. I think, it, I think it gives the reason why we follow Christ. Um, just go with me on this. And I realize this is extra biblical, which is always a little dangerous. But um, go with me. If the story had kept going, can't you just imagine the, some, uh, the, the man in need waking up in this inn? Maybe it's a day later. Maybe it's two or three days later. Can you imagine him coming to his senses? Um, last thing he remembered, he got jumped. Um, they were, there was yelling, and he could feel the kicks in his ribs and <clears throat> probably thought to himself, man, I'm going to die, and the lights went out. And now he wakes up in this inn and he's all bandaged up with some other man's clothes and his wounds are treated. And there's this man like waiting on him hand and foot. Can you imagine the confusion? Innkeeper, um, I'm sorry, innkeeper, <clears throat> could you help me? Like what, what has happened here? I mean, I was on the path of blood. You know, I, I never should have been there. My wife told me I should, but you know, I needed to get from to Jericho and I just tried and man, next thing you know, they jumped me in. I mean, I thought I was dead. Innkeeper says, hey, you were definitely all but dead. Um, you were going to die. But now you're very much alive. Innkeeper, like, who, who, who did this? Well, you'll find this hard to believe, but it was your enemy. Your enemy that did this for you. My enemy, what do you mean? Well, it was a Samaritan. A Samaritan did this for me. <clears throat> That's right. Samaritan, he brought you here, and he paid me to take care of you. He paid you to take care of me. Um, where is he now? Well, he's, he's gone away. What do you mean he's gone away? Like, like, will I ever see him again? Well, matter of fact, I think you will. What do you mean? <clears throat> well, he told me he'd come back to see you. You know, what, you, you know what would have to be running through your mind if you're lying in the bed in conversation with the innkeeper in that mind? You know what has have to be in your mind? Until the day I met the man who saved my life, I'd be thinking, how do I thank him for what he's done for me? How can I ever thank him profoundly enough for giving me my life? Not a day would pass where that wouldn't be my pervading thought. I'll see him again. 
How do I thank him? And the words of the text are meant to ring in your ears. How do I thank him? How do I thank him? Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Um, you know, Paul in Romans 12, you guys are familiar with the verse. I won't quote it exactly right, but Paul in Romans 12, 1, it comes to mind. He said, in view of God's mercy. Do you remember that phrase? In view of God's mercy, offer yourselves is a living sacrifice. Let this be your spiritual act of worship. That's the, that's the parable of the Good Samaritan. In view of what he's done for you, just offer yourself back to him. Like hop on the altar as your spiritual act of worship. Just say, here. It's Isaiah um, seeing God, just catching a glimpse. And he's broken in his wretched. He sees one glimpse of God, not like the presence. I mean, he actually sees God, just a glimpse. Um, in Isaiah 6, it says he just ruined because when he sees God, he sees himself, and he can't believe his sinfulness. I don't think any of us have had quite that experience. But when he really saw God's holiness, he really saw his sinfulness, and he was ruined. It said ruined. That's what the word ruined. He said, woe is me, like judgment on me. He says, I deserve judgment. Just judgment. Let me drink it. That's what I deserve. And God sends this angel over, and the angel touches his lips with a hot coal and says, your sins are atoned for. <laughs> so imagine Isaiah seeing God, having this unbelievable awareness of his sin, knowing he's absolutely wretched, ruined, and asked for judgment, and he gets atonement. And then in the moment of atonement, he's so overwhelmed that he hears God saying in a conversation not involving Isaiah, he hears God, I guess he's talking to the angels, or maybe to the Trinity in a Trinitarian conversation. God says, whom shall we send to do this work? And Isaiah over here, fresh off the atonement of his sin, basking in the moment, speaks up, interrupts the conversation, says, send me! Just me! Um, when you get a guy right there... Um, Really knows his sin. Really knows his deadness. Sees what God has done for him in atonement. Man, you got a vessel. You got a guy who's free to live and love and serve like his life's not his own. Like he's been bought at a price. He's just free. Can you imagine the church was full of men and women who were that free. And I think the key to that freedom is to understand the gospel. That's why I love this parable. That's why I love all these parables. Every one is the gospel. For guys like me that are not experts in the law, that are not experts in the prophets, but I can understand that. Um, and I can understand that the only natural response to the gospel of Jesus Christ the only natural response to a proper understanding of the gospel is to say, here I am, send me. Is to say, in view of your mercy, can you use me? I'll hop on the altar. 
this my life, let my life be my spiritual act of worship. It is to go and do likewise. I'll close with this thought. When I got to my dad's bedside, he was able to say two things for me, to me before he died. One was that he loved me, and two was he asked me to take care of my mom. And I just, I just want to say, you know, when dad said that, and it was just me and him, by the way, uh, and when he said that, I did not feel like I needed a few minutes to consider. Um, I didn't say, Dad, I'll, I'll pray earnestly about that. And, and Dad, if it's not too much of an inconvenience, I'll do my best when I can. Uh, you know what? You know what? Like, here's the, I didn't even think about it. By the way, that can entail a lot. Didn't even think about it. Responded out of visceral love and compassion for my father. I just said, I'll do it. It was the only natural response to a man who would poured out his life for me was to give my life back to him. It was the only response that made any sense. And so it is with Jesus. Go and do likewise is the only response that makes sense to a God who's done what he's done for us. Amen? Amen. Amen. So let me pray that we can do just that. Father, thank you so much for our time and uh, <clears throat> amen this morning that we just look at the scriptures, we study this parable, and Lord, we are just reminded of how in need we are, we have been and we still are, and that yet you continually meet us in our need because you're driven by this compassion, this love. And so, God, it is our great honor to respond to your love by being free, being free to pour our lives out, even when it's inconvenient, even when it costs us our time, our money, our very lives. We're, we're just people that are free to love because we've first been loved. Lord, I pray that that would resound deeply in our hearts today, that we would be stopped in our tracks in compassion for the brokenness of our fellow man often, that we would be inconvenienced often, and that we would count it every time a great privilege to pour our lives out for you in response to the atonement you've provided for us. God, thank you for giving yourselves to us, saving our lives, and giving us the privilege of serving you until we meet you again face to face. Let our lives be a resounding thank you for the goodness of the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ at work in our lives. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.